This is Unfilter, episode 338 for November 19th, 2020. So there is a lot of dismay and outright anxiety up and down the Pentagon hallways right now. One official is saying uh, they believe the beheadings, that's the word they're using, the political beheadings obviously are done for now. Another official telling me uh, that it's scary, that it's unsettling, that these are dictator type moves. That's the kind of language we are hearing from people tonight here in the Pentagon. Hello, friend, and welcome into the People's History Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm watching D.C. return to what appears to be its normal. The infection is clearing up, and I'm not talking about COVID. The body of U.S. politics has rejected its foreign object, Donald Trump. And all of the swamp creatures seem to be sighing in relief and, of course, building back better. Think about this. Biden, Pelosi, and McConnell, the power gang of corruption and obstruction is back and older than ever. Ironically, Joe Biden is the youngest of the group, if that doesn't tell you something, and proving that people who succeed in D.C. are those that have failed the people the most. Well, here we are. And as this episode goes on, you'll hear that the impact that these individuals have had on just our current day-to-day life and situation. And that's why, gosh darn it, guys, I'm so excited that they're in power still so so excited. Uh, so excited about it. But let's start with the actual infection that's going on, and that is COVID-19. We have an update and also a new senator who's been infected. 166,000 new COVID-19 cases were reported over the most recent 24-hour period. Johns Hopkins University says that brings the total in the U.S. to more than 11 and a quarter million. Also tonight, the longest-serving Republican in the Senate says he has tested positive for the virus. Iowa's Chuck Grassley did not say how he was exposed to COVID-19. The 87-year-old has not missed a vote since 1993. He probably got it at a rave. I mean, you know that Grassley. He is just a party animal. There has been more news. There's been more news about vaccines. There's been refinement of the vaccine news. There's been talk of vaccines ramping up programs to distribute them and perhaps even seeking emergency authorizations sooner than later. As Pfizer and Moderna prepare their applications to the FDA, other vaccines are moving quickly through clinical trials. AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are in the midst of large phase three studies in the U.S., with results expected around the end of the year or early 2021. J&J is the only company in advanced trials so far to test a single-shot vaccine. The others all require two doses. Behind those companies are Novavax and Sanofi with partner GlaxoSmithKline, with trials that could start by the end of the year. The vaccines all target the coronavirus in the same way, focusing on its spike protein. But they do it slightly differently. Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines rely on brand new technology known as messenger RNA, and they've been able to move the fastest. AstraZeneca and J&J also use a newer technology, while the others employ a tried-and-true approach which takes a little longer to develop. Success for multiple vaccines is key for large numbers of Americans to be able to get vaccinated quickly. Moderna and Pfizer together are expected to have enough supply for 20 million Americans this year. In early 2021, it'll be about 25 million people per month. By April through July, Dr. Anthony Fauci says if other vaccines are successful, there should be enough for everybody in the U.S. who wants to get vaccinated. Yeah, but make no mistake about it. It's going to be a ramp up. 
it's going to be a little bit of time. Different requirements of storage for each one as well. Um, so the Pfizer one seems to have the most significant storage requirements and limitations. But of course, the vaccine, I think, is, well, I've, I've never actually really really put a lot of my hopes on it. I think I think early on this could have been better managed and controlled with proper rapid testing. I haven't brought that one up in a few weeks, um, but it is the reality of the situation. And we do seem to have gotten some FDA approval for, I guess, a, a somewhat rapid. Well, yeah, I mean, rapid compared to what we have now and maybe more importantly, at home COVID test. Also, guys, a bit of a game changer with a new announcement from the FDA. The FDA has approved emergency use for the first COVID-19 test that can be conducted entirely at home. This is something a lot of people have been waiting for. I didn't think it would come this quickly. Uh, The test, which provides results in just 30 minutes, is produced by a privately held biotech company called Lucera Health. And here's how it works. A patient collects a swab sample from their nose You swirl it in a vial, which is then placed in a test unit, and the results are made visible on the device's light-up display within 30 minutes. Again, this seems like a a big game-changer to me. The FDA said that those who test positive should seek additional care, and those who test negative but still experience symptoms should follow up with a healthcare provider. But the difference being... You don't have to go stand in line with other people. It, it, here, here's the issue with, with testing and that I've realized pretty recently myself with the things we've dealt with. If you are asymptomatic, but you've been exposed to someone, you should go get a test to make sure that you are not a carrier and, and, and moving around with this. But if you want to get a test, a lot of times you have to go stand in line with a bunch of people who are symptomatic. And that to me seems a little riskier than maybe just hanging out and trying to hide back if you can for, and not expose other people to this. But that's Yeah, yeah, that is actually part of the problem, right? And so in some areas uh, you hang out in your car, but still you're, you're upping the chances. I, I really like the idea of testing at home. And honestly, if, if they could have gotten their crap together and it was the FDA that really drugged their feet on this, and that, has been in, that coverage has been in previous shows, but if they would have gotten their act together sooner, you could have seen a corporatist uh, dream world where they're making tons of money on Amazon primable test kits. I mean, I would have bought one. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have bought a test if right now you could go on Amazon and you could buy a test to see if you have antibodies, you could buy t- to see if you're positive. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. But if it's cheap and afford, if it's cheap and accessible or affordable and readily available, whichever way you want to go, um, it means people can test often. If you can test often, you're going to catch something as it begins to spread. And if you can catch people as they're beginning to get contagious and spreading and you isolate, then it makes all the difference. If it's two, three days after you've become infectious, well, that's a big chunk of time when you're spreading. And I would say it's clearly been a failure. You know, I, I, I am so angry, actually, to be, the, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't want to, like, come on air and, and rant and rave, about, and rave about it, but angry and borderline depressed, whatever that mix of emotions is, is how I feel about the state of COVID in the U.S. I, I feel like we have really, really failed to get this thing under control. And the lockdowns did shit nothing. They just did shit nothing. And now here we are, still figuring out masks, 
still don't have rapid testing. And now we're looking at rolling back into lockdowns again. In fact, a lot of lockdowns have been announced today. New York announced that, or yesterday, announced that schools are shutting back down again. Here in Washington state, our Governor Inslee announced that new lockdowns were coming into place. Really seems like it's going to impact diners. And, you know, he feels real bad for destroying small businesses. But it's just got to be done because of science. So this is the COVID pandemic is not just a public health crisis. It is an economic crisis as well. Why is that? And on how we have fashioned a plan needs to recognize both of those things. We cannot take lightly the impact on businesses in, re, in this regard. But this is clear. We also cannot enjoy a full economic recovery, which we all desperately want, without knocking down this virus. That is an economic principle we have to realize as well. Who was it? Oh, I can't remember right now. But remember, um, remember, <laughs> I don't know, a month ago I played a clip about somebody comparing the handling of COVID-19 to a drunk driver. Uh, so that analogy strikes me again here where you take that ridiculous drunk driver analogy and apply it to this. It's like somebody drinking while they're driving and apologizing and saying, you know, I, I take safety very seriously but just nothing can be done. I've got to go to the store. And I know I'm drunk, but nothing can be done. Nothing can be done. So to the business owners and the employees right now, I want you to know you're not alone. You have 7 million people. We're going to look for every way to help you through this difficult time. This has really got to be making people who are unemployed or whose life's work has been destroyed by the previous lockdowns, or who were just starting to crawl their way out of a hole, this little speech has got to be making them feel a lot better. During the pandemic, my office, in partnership with the legislatures and cities and counties, have distributed $25 million in grants to, saw, to small businesses, and that has saved thousands of jobs. We've also provided $100 million for rental assistance. And today I'm announcing another effort to reduce the hardship of this uh, pandemic that is brought to business and workers. And I'm committing another $50 million to help mitigate impacts on businesses and workers. And we fully intend to get that money out as soon as possible. This will be in grants, combination of grants and loans before the end of the year. And we're doing some pretty creative work in, in being able to do that and leverage some other dollars as well. I'll have more to say about that in the upcoming weeks. Well, it's a good thing that money grows on trees, and um, you can imagine all of the businesses who are just jumping to get a loan when they have no revenue. Because, you know, banks love to lend money to businesses who are collapsing. In fact, this has been one of the dramatic failings of the Fed's attempt to prop up the economy, and they have to continue to extend these programs. Link in the damn show notes. My God, this is so obvious. The federal government has done nothing to help. Stimulus has failed. It has, they've got nothing. Politics got in the way and nothing was done. We got one check once, state and local funding never came, and we still are, and still, and we still have nothing done. In fact, I'll, you know, I'm going to dedicate a little time to that in the show. I want to get back to that. But back to Ensley. He talks as if this money comes from, if is just free, and that they're going to just be able to get loans. This, the, the loans that the Fed backed right now for businesses, nobody can get them. There's already 
loan programs out there for small businesses. The problem is these businesses are failing. Their customers are going away. They can't even have customers in some cases. They're not good loan candidates. And the hardest thing is, and I've, I've seen this hit family. So, and of course I'm a small business owner and I'm in, in, I'm in Washington where this is happening. So it hits very close to home. And I, I hate it because what the way I see it is a government approach to trying to, to solve one problem, which is coronavirus, while creating another problem, which is the total collapse of small business. Hey, good morning. So we have been talking to restaurant owners throughout this entire pandemic about all of these changes. And what they have been telling us is that they understand the restrictions. But they say if you're going to restrict our business, they're hoping that they can get some help financially. For a lot of these businesses, this recent shutdown, uh, the PPP, that federal money, that's out. So the governor yesterday announced $50 million to help small businesses. It'll be through loans and grants. Right now, we're still waiting on details for how exactly that is going to work and be distributed. Now, the problem is, of course, is that even just waiting for the details is excruciating because the problem already exists. The lockdown has already started. So they're already in meltdown. And so to not even get the details on how you can even apply for the money, let alone however long it's going to take to actually get the money, if you even qualify to get the money, in the meantime, they're going to have to lay people off and close their doors permanently. And another family loses their source of income. But at least they didn't get coronavirus, right? I mean, thank God they didn't get coronavirus. Their entire family is destroyed. That generation's wealth is gone. And the structure that held the family together has been thrown into tatters and they're probably all each other's neck now. But, you know, at least they didn't get coronavirus. And meanwhile, at the national level, those were Seattle clips. At the national level, you see the networks like NBC cheering lockdowns while, while then trying to empathize and lament the pain that they cause. Good evening, everyone. As the country appears headed into a dark winter, overwhelmed by a growing new wave of COVID infections, another hopeful ray of light appeared on the horizon today. A second COVID vaccine candidate, its makers say, appears to be more successful than imagined. Moderna announcing today its vaccine is nearly 95 percent effective. And with last week's upbeat announcement from Pfizer about its shot, there is building optimism about a way out of this pandemic but one that experts warn sadly won't come before we face what may be the worst days of this crisis. And let's not get ahead of ourselves. As the country waits for this vaccine, there's a new wave of shutdowns and restrictions we're watching aimed at stopping the surge. With more, here's Gabe Gutierrez. Tonight, California's governor is hitting what he calls an emergency break, dramatically rolling back reopenings for nearly the entire state amid an unprecedented COVID spike. Nationwide, almost 24 million Americans reported food insecurity, an increase of 6 million because of the pandemic. Now, could the two be related? Now, could the two be related? And, you know, California and Oregon and Washington, we were the ones that were playing it super safe. We were the ones that were masking up. How could this have happened? Did we not mask up enough? Were there not enough masks? Because it sure seemed like... For a while, we were all on board here with the mask, and we were reported as states that were closely following the mask mandates and we were, exper uh, were practicing good social distancing. So what happened to all of that? Where did all of that go? Where did that get us? Spike. Nationwide, almost 24 million Americans reported food insecurity, an increase of 6 million because of the pandemic. Texas has seen long lines stretching up to three miles. 
In California, one food bank reported a 125% increase in demand. Could that be because all of these people have lost their jobs after only just getting them after the 2008 crash, which devastated work for years and took forever to crawl that back? And then they finally got back to work and then they lost their jobs again. In New York, workers are scrambling to provide turkeys for Thanksgiving. And while children are resilient, the isolation and fear many are feeling is causing a significant uptick in three to six-year-olds feeling overwhelmed, worried, or sad. There's not even, not even enough attention given to the burden that this places on children and family. Children don't get to socialize. And family, and especially, and I know this personally, can be very challenging for single-parent families that now have kids at home. Like, the whole deal about being a two-income family, like, sort of the unsaid promise was, is society is going to give you daycare during the day, so that way now both parents can work. Because we realize a single income is no longer enough to support an American family, so both mom and dad have to go to work. But, don't worry, we got your back. We'll do at least six to seven hours of daycare. That's that's the unspoken promise. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but that's how a lot of Americans get to work. Now, a lot, some people are fortunate enough where they could afford daycare or they have family members who would watch their kids during the day. Or maybe they even have a full time live in frickin nanny. But that isn't true for the majority of the middle class and below, which are the bulk of the workforce. And now not only not only do some of them have extremely difficult and risky working conditions because we haven't come up with rapid testing yet, even though companies had developed it six months ago. Even though companies developed it six months ago, we don't have rapid testing. And because we have to send people to the front lines, quote unquote, or God forbid they have to work from home and their kids are home all day. How, how is this supposed to be tenable for anybody? Meanwhile, though, the people seem to have just accepted the risk of COVID and it's a reality that just seems to be obvious when you look at the infection rates and if you look at people are, at, are treating all of this. And the media has coined the term as COVID fatigue, but I'm not sure I'm buying it. So, look, there is frustration here rooted in the financial strain that so many people are feeling, but also in the psychological strain, right, of having to oh, ride yeah. this roller coaster up and oh, yeah. down yeah. over and over again. So what's helpful and what's not? Well, joining me now, clinical psychologist Dr. Vivian Lee in Toronto and Dr. Raymond Abdulrahman in Winnipeg. Uh, hello to the both of you. Uh, Dr. Abdulrahman, maybe I'll start with you. The, I mean, the mixed messaging that we heard about in Peter's piece, you know, of keeping businesses open but being told to stay home, what is the effect of that on how tolerant we are of, of the natural ups and downs? Do you really need to be told this? Do you need, you need somebody to go on and tell you how that makes you feel? It, it almost feels like a type of, for lack of a better term, programming. This is what is acceptable discourse about this topic is essentially what that box is that they're creating. This is acceptable discourse around this topic, and these are the things you should say and feel. <laughs> yeah, the lockdown sure is tough, but got to beat the Rona. And just to make sure you get your good little citizen programming when you really need it, the CBS Morning News program, which is viewed by very many, well, they wanted to make sure you knew how to talk to your family about canceling Thanksgiving, which, darn it, if that isn't my favorite holiday. We're just over a week away from Thanksgiving. Can you believe it? And many families <laughs> are looking for a safe way to celebrate as coronavirus cases soar. The CDC recommends 
only celebrating with people in your household. But if you are joining others, the CDC says you should wear a mask when you're not eating, stay six feet apart, and if you're inside, keep the windows open. Keep the windows open during Thanksgiving. Um, I don't think you live where a lot of us are, live where it's very cold. Now, I, we knew this was coming. Uh, when when Canada, who already had their Thanksgiving, which is earlier, they, they, they was labeled a super spreader event. Super spreader event. So I knew this was coming. But I, what I want you to hear is the tone of this conversation, how they're trying to hold your hand like a child. And how they're trying to tell you what the psychologist and CBS News contributor Lisa Damore joins us with how to handle difficult decisions and conversations around the holidays. Lisa, good morning. Thanks for being with us. What is what is your advice to people good about? Good to see you. Yeah, great to see you too. I wish yeah, you could be uh, here. Uh, uh-huh. Many people are still deciding how to to deal with the holiday as close as it is. What's your advice? You know, this is such a tough one, and it's hard because there's really no good decision. You know, either people have to deal with disappointing themselves or their families, or they have to assume some really frightening risks. So the first thing I think to do is to recognize that there's no perfect way to go about this, and then to make the choice that actually one can really live with. And the- Listen to the terms. Listen to the We have taken the coronavirus to this unbelievable level of risk. Um it it may actually be statistically riskier to drive to your family. Like the time you're in the car may be riskier to your health statistically than if you get the coronavirus. I know that sounds ludicrous, but if you just look at the survival rate and you look at how dangerous it is to drive on the holidays when the roads are icy and people have been drinking, so you got to figure accidents go way up on the holidays. I, I actually would I would buy that argument. I obviously don't know. Don't know for sure. But you could you could convince me that it's the drive to the Thanksgiving dinner would be riskier than having Thanksgiving dinner with your family. uh, And then to make the choice that actually one can really live with. And the challenge we're up against right now is that we have been in this pandemic so long and it feels tedious and familiar. I know you're tired, children. And yet we have to reconcile that with the fact that it is as dangerous as it has ever been. And I think we really need to let those record rates drive decision making. All right. Once you make a decision about what you're going to do, you have to have the conversation with the family. What's the best way to do that? You know, I think different families handle this in different ways. You know, some families do well by getting this information in doses, right? So it might be worth calling and saying, I'm having questions about coming and then following up later and saying, I've decided I can't come. Other families do well getting hard news all at once. Did she just kind of advocate lying? <laughs> like, you know, just deceive them for a little bit. And then once they get comfortable with that, drop the truth bomb on them. You know, that's 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 your that's your advice. <laughs> I just can't even with this. It's getting it's getting to me. It really is getting to me. Um, but maybe maybe I could just um, buy some chill pills from Amazon because Amazon is launching pharmacy sales. And that. That feels like it's going to be a big deal. Amazon is shaking up the competition in the healthcare industry by launching a new online pharmacy. The service lets users buy their medications on their phones or other devices and have them delivered to their doorsteps in a couple of days. Amazon says it will offer discounts on prescription drugs for those who buy without insurance. The pharmacy will offer both brand name and generic drugs. So to talk more about this, let's bring in David Kirkpatrick. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Techonomy. Uh, David, um, Amazon Pharmacy marks the company 
company's biggest push into the $300 billion drug retail sector. When you say it that way, you know, $300 billion, and then the question is, why would Amazon want to jump into this industry? <laughs> Do you think they'll buy ads? <laughs> uh-huh. All right, I, 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 I've got to calm down. I, I just get so worked up about this kind of stuff because, well... It just seems like we're we're dooming the middle class. We're dooming small business. We're we're gonna just totally deplete entire generation of wealth momentum, and DC is too dysfunctional to even try to help out. And I can't believe that that's the thing that I'm waiting on because take me back a few years, maybe before 2008, and the idea of a government check that just bails everybody out would seem ludicrous. But now everybody's asking for money. Everybody wants a loan. Everybody wants money. It's the only thing that's going to save us. And I can't see any other way out either. If the government shuts the businesses down, then the government should be bailing the businesses out. As we enter the last weeks of 2020, what's already been a very difficult year for small business, every single red warning light is flashing. This is your buddy, your good pal, Marco Re- Marco. Marco Rubio, or Marky, as I almost said. It's telling us that what's coming here in the next few days and weeks is catastrophic. There are millions of small businesses that are on the verge of being wiped out. They are one shutdown order away, one pandemic outbreak away from being wiped out. Even if they're not shut down, people won't go out, people won't be able to spend. And then the cascading effect is extraordinary. Think about how many millions of people work at these places. Imagine another wave of unemployment, not to mention another wave of businesses shuttering up uh, and everything that comes with it, the vacancies for commercial real estate. This is a disaster. We need another wave of PPP assistance. And I do not understand why we can't just at least pass that. Why is that being held hostage for everything else? This has been a real cute political game. Um, And by cute, I mean disgusting and devastating to people's lives. But a clear indicator that D.C. just could give two craps about the people. And it's it's getting really bad. And I'm going to tell you what the game is here in just a second. But I, I got to paint the picture for you. It's not just me. It's not just uh, Marky Rubio there. It's it's economists. And, of course, when it comes to audio, the economist that gets the most audio time is, well, Jim Cramer. I really hate to say this, but I think that Congress has doomed so many companies. The president has doomed so many companies. So when you, you're going to get Walmart, it's Amazon, it's Target, it's Costco, it's Home Depot. I still think Lowe's. I don't think Lowe's is a sale here. But that's who won. That, that's who won. And whether we think that's fair or not, that's who won when, the, when Congress and the president doomed all of the small and medium-sized businesses that cannot, don't have credit lines and can't keep up. They're the empty storefronts of the country. And I think that that is just a terrible thing, but it has nothing to do with the stock market. You guys, you guys know me. Anybody that's listened to this show for a while, especially since it's been back, knows that I have an RV and I love to take road trips. And the thing is, there's a lot of empty storefronts already. And one of the things you learn when you drive around this country is at different points in history, Things were going along just fine, and then something changed. And you can see these snapshots in history when you drive around the nation. And I am struggling with the fact that now when I go out on the road, I'll see a snapshot of this year. 
And it's not because of COVID. It's because of how we handled the situation. It's our failure to handle the situation. Natural disasters and environmental events are always going to happen. That is the nature of life on this living planet. How we adapt and how we respond is always going to be what makes the difference. And instead of getting above partisan politics, we saw the divisions get worse. We saw the different sides get deeper in their trenches. And now here's the game that's essentially being played. The Democrats say they have something. Pass it now. Pass it now. Pass it now. That's what Biden says. It's the HEROES Act. The problem with the HEROES Act is it is a $2 trillion giveaway. I've covered it on the show a couple of times. It has all kinds of stuff in there. Some stuff now that the election's over that's not even relevant anymore. But there's just, it's a wicked amount of giveaways. And you figure $2 trillion. I mean, before 2020, were we ever casually talking about things in the trillions like this? We can't even really grasp a billion dollars. So when we start talking two trillion dollars, it's hard for us to understand how much money that is. And so the issue is, is that McConnell and Pelosi essentially can't come to an agreement and the Trump White House is now impotent in this issue. They've essentially just taken themselves out of the mix, probably, probably on a calculation that they don't have much political firepower right now and they haven't been able to get anything done there. They're not getting anything done now. And so it's essentially fallen back to McConnell and Pelosi. And McConnell says that the core issue for the Republicans is that the Democrats want this two trillion or nothing. He has been trying to work them down. I think he got them. I think he proposed something that was like in the one point five, one point three trillion, which is still a ridiculous amount of money. And now now that things have shifted, he he wants to talk about more like a limited scope kind of stimulus, which is probably not going to be enough because they've delayed so much. So he needs to come up. He was asked about it yesterday. Mr. Leader, is your pessimism on COVID relief based on actual conversations you've had with Democrats or simply on their public statements? And then secondly, it seems like you are going to take the lead back from Secretary Mnuchin. Are you going to now talk to Speaker Pelosi? And does President-elect Biden have a role in shaping it during the lame duck? Well, first, um, I'm based on what I'm seeing publicly because we've had no private discussions about this. And it looks to me like the Speaker, the Democratic leader of the Senate, and uh, former Vice President Biden all have the view that two and a half trillion or nothing. Um, I share the view of my colleagues that have been expressed here. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a 2.5 trillion deal. 2.5 trillion. Is it a more narrowly targeted proposals such as we laid out in September and October here in the Senate deals with the actual problem. As some of you may or may not have noticed, revenues at the state level are basically up almost everywhere. And they continue to insist apparently on almost a trillion dollars from state and local government. That has nothing to do with solving this problem. So to sum it up, I'm open to a targeted bill roughly of the amount that we recommended, a half a trillion dollars, which is not nothing, narrowly targeted at schools, at health care providers, at PPP, 
and of course liability reform to keep America from being engaged in an epidemic of lawsuits on the heels of the pandemic. Very Got to protect businesses, of course. That's top of his concern there. Epidemic of lawsuits on the heels of the pandemic. Very open to that. But I've seen no evidence yet, as several of my colleagues have suggested, that they're open to it. By the way, I don't know how much he's thinking about protections for small business, more so giant corporations that forced workers in meat factories and other places to continue to work. I think that's who he's looking for protections for. Now, I I think there's potentially some politics at play here. You think? Hmm. Now, that's just too crazy, isn't it? No, no. Here's a little conspiracy bacon for you. Um, Because these are politicians and so this isn't a conspiracy at all. McConnell doesn't want to give $2.5 trillion to the Democrats, essentially, because a lot of it does go to bail out some of their pet projects and states. But additionally, there's just no way around it. That much money injected into the economy is going to make a difference, and it's going to put Biden in a good position for a recovery. Can't have that. Can't have that. So you got to give him just enough money to dig him out of the hole, but not enough to give Biden a chance of being successful economically, because you can't have that, you see. So maybe let's just do $500 billion, which, of course, Pelosi and Schumer will never go for if they want $2.5 trillion. Pelosi was sort of asked about this recently, about maybe what they could do with a smaller bill, and also if it's worth attaching it to the overall government omnibus spending bill that's also pending, um, which she's not for. Not for. I wanted to know, when you guys are looking at a potential COVID relief bill, government funding, could you put those two things together, or do you anticipate no. that your talks with Secretary Mnuchin and Mr. McConnell will start back up? Well, let me just say this, because I appreciate your question. I see in one of the local metropolitan journals uh, that we postponed doing a bill until after the election. Not at all. Our bill passed in the middle of May. Since then, people have died because the Republicans uh, in, the, in the House and Senate would not sign up to crush the virus. So the Democrats in the House have the Heroes Bill, um, this $2.5 trillion whopper. Um, and she's like, I don't see the problem. We're, we're good. We have ours. And this is their very clever way to make it sound like they've taken action and the Republicans aren't taking action, which, if you recall, was the go-to strategy during the Obama era. Era. Everything was the Republicans' fault. The inaction, he was inaction in Congress. That's why Obama couldn't get anything done, even though he had it stacked his first term. The thing is, it's a scapegoat. It's a, not a scapegoat. What's the right word? It's a, um, it's like a distraction because they're not ready to negotiate yet or they need the Republicans to come way, way up, whatever it is, whatever the reality is. They've got this out there as a distraction to say, well, look, we have this Heroes Act. And, and you're seeing how they're so already in unison in a way that Trump has never been in unison with the Republican leadership, that, even McConnell. Like right now, they have a divide, which I'm gonna, they, have, they have a split, which, I'll, which I'm about to get to. But here you are seeing Schumer and Pelosi and Biden and Biden's entire team, including Cam, all work in unison. Pass the HEROES Act right now. Right now. Not later. Right now. Right now. 
That's what Joe said in a press conference. Just like that, only slower and more obnoxious. Seriously. They're speaking with one voice on this. Pass the HEROES Act. Pass the HEROES Act. But they know a $2.5 trillion whopper is never going to go through anything that has any Republican control. So this is their, it's, it's their way to punt, the, punt this or maybe in a better parlance, kick the can. But you got to wonder if perhaps at least somewhat more restrained package wouldn't be better, not only just so it could clear and get out there, but also maybe could have better oversight because the previous package, well, had a lot of abuse and very little oversight. PPP, the government's paycheck protection program designed to help small businesses during the pandemic, has been ground zero for fraud. Nearly 100 people around the country have been charged so far with attempting to steal more than $240 million. And now CNBC has learned how some of that money is being digitally laundered through popular apps used every day legally to send and receive funds. What? Kayla Tausche on the trail of what police call the money mules. What's kind of funny here in this clip is they demonize applications that are just using the standard banking system to transfer money to people, but because it makes it accessible to people, it's bad, is sort of the vibe here. It's just really bizarre. I've never seen in my 28 years experience the amount of fraud that I've seen currently. In this music video, L.A. rapper Nuke Bizzle brags about getting rich by stealing COVID-19 unemployment benefits. The video says it was produced just for entertainment purposes, but a criminal complaint claims otherwise. The rapper is facing three felony charges for obtaining more than $1.2 million in those benefits, some of the money accessed on cash app transactions. He has pled not guilty and his attorney declined to comment. Faster payments means faster fraud. Secret Service Supervisor Roy Dotson says fraudsters can easily exploit Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, and Zelle to move money back and forth. The $2 trillion CARES Act, an easy target. The Secret Service has more than 700 pending criminal investigations into COVID-related fraud, and they increasingly involve one of these apps. How easy has this type of fraud become to conduct for these criminals? Extremely easy, um, just because of the online application process that's in place. That ability makes it something that they can do remotely and then direct that to different money mules across the country. I love, I love this. I love this because this is just a preview of, of the kind of crap we're going to hear when any kind of digital currency takes off or cryptocurrency. <laughs> I mean, they think it's easy now. <laughs> Just wait. Oh, brother. And, you know, even if you got rid of things like Venmo and the Cash App, Apple still is you send cash directly. Google does, too. You can send cash via email. And, of course, bank apps are building into their apps directly, too. So um, they're kind of just on the wrong side of history on that one. But also, it was a fun reminder that the Secret Service, who protects the president, is also responsible for these types of fraud investigations. And if that doesn't tell you something, if that doesn't give you some hint about how this nation is structured, I don't know what will, my friends. I don't think I could spell it out for you any more than that. All right, I'm calming down. I apologize. I got really worked up there. The, the lockdown stuff... Even gets me more upset than I I even let it show on air because I, I try to I try to try to remove myself and just be an observer and just sort of have an observational role on it. But that one, you know, I'm it's just it just touches on so many nerves close to home. 
So we're going to move on. We'll talk about other stuff. I just want to take a break right here and remind you that this show is listener supported. Even the ones where I'm a little spicy, um, I still really do appreciate your support. I can't say and do these things, can't have open conversations and discussions and unfettered access to information unless it's listener supported. It's just the nature of the biz. It's just how it works. And, you know, I appreciate everyone who decides it's worth their time and and a little bit of money to go over to patreon.com slash unfilter and support this show. Also, I'll give a shout out to our community growing in Discord. You can get that on our website. It's linked up at the top or unfilter.show slash Discord. All right, and let's restart the show. I'm all done with that. Just had to get that off the off the old chest of Ruskies. All right, neighbor Rooney, let's do the rest of the show. Hey. I want to let you know I made a executive decision right before I started the show today, and that was to spare you a montage that I had clipped together of CBS News who spent five and a half days talking about Obama. And I got to tell you, man, I put together a pretty good little uh, clip sequence that I was going to use to really show you how ridiculous the media is right now and how little they're investigating the incoming Biden administration. And what a great opportunity to dig into that administration, to dig into Biden's background, and to really kind of show the people who is going to be running the country. But instead, instead they're spending basically all of their airtime either talking about Trump or Obama's new book. I'm not even joking. So I put together a couple of bits of information to just try to help us have some idea of uh, what's coming our way. And um, I also will have a bunch of links in the show notes. This is The show notes this week are ridiculous. There's lots of extra stuff in the show notes this week. But Biden is doing his hiring, you know, getting ready for the new team. President-elect Biden is expected to announce new members of his cabinet later on today as he presses on with the transition despite obstruction on the part of President Trump. The Biden-Harris team is also set to get national security briefings, but are still being denied a presidential daily briefing since Mr. Trump has yet to concede. The president-elect spoke about the refusal to start the transition and the lack of new COVID-19 economic relief packages. The idea the president is still playing golf and not doing anything about it is, is beyond my comprehension. <laughs> I just thought that was good. Little, he got a little jab in there. He woke up for a second. Yeah, I've been looking at like the former for, uh, former pharmaceutical insurance lobbyist, uh, Steve Ricochetti, that's joining. Um, of course, one of the top Democrats who's got out of anybody it gotten the most from big oil and is just obviously in the pocket of big oil. He's joining uh, Biden's team, of course, a co-founder of a firm that represents pharma and private equity firms is is joining Biden's team. So it's uh, I don't know. I think Biden is going to Obama this generation of youth vote. And what I mean by that is Obama promised all this change and hope and yes, we can. And then was a total corporatist centrist who brought on all of these D.C. swamp creatures when he became president. And uh, The Hill had on a guest, uh, Joy Gray, I think her name is. They get to it here in the clip. And uh, she touches on this, which is something that's been in the back of my mind for a little bit. But I thought she did a really good job of putting it into words. So this is the introduction to it. I'll just play it so that because The Hill hosts do a great job. Uh, Crystal and Sager 
have a morning show that I've talked about before, and I think they do a really good job of analysis. So I wanted to play a little bit of it for you and their guest take. His inner circle for his administration so far looks exactly like you would expect, and I don't mean that in a good way. The list includes Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Counselor to the President Steve Reschetti, Office of Public Engagement Director Cedric Richmond, and Deputy Chief of Staff Jen O'Malley-Dillon. Contributing editor to Current Affairs, former National Press Secretary for the Sanders campaign, co-host of the Bad Faith podcast, Brianna Joy Gray. She joins us now to weigh in on the appointment so far. Brianna, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Of course. So let's get your immediate reaction to kind of the people that Biden has selected in his campaign so far. I mean, I think it's largely expected on everybody here's account. What are some of the lessons that we can take away from these personnel decisions? Look, there was a lot of discussion prior to the election about how leftists, progressives, anyone who had supported other candidates in the Democratic primary needed to fall in line and vote for Joe Biden because we were going to be able to push him left. And fundamentally, he was someone who believed in science, who understood what the stakes were before us, who had a basic understanding of decency and what the American people needed, who knew that we only had 10 years to avoid the most cataclysmic cataclysmic effects of climate change. And now what do we see? A slate of appointments that kind of flies in the face of any kind of substantive understanding of those ideas, and which really undermines the idea that we would be able to pressure him to move in a leftward direction, left, mind you, to where the majority of Americans are. Oh, yeah. It's going to be really fun watching the progressives get their bubble popped over and over and over again with a Biden administration. You know, if they fell for this trick, then they have it coming. Maybe they just have to be um, around for a few elections to see how this goes. And this will be another learning um, episode (laughs) for us all. Build back better everywhere, though. I mean, this is why I know Biden's in. Um, uh, You know, even though there has been some movement in the uh, recount to Georgia and I have a bunch of links in the show notes around that. It seems to me that the world governments have decided And it's Joe Biden. And they're all on the same page. They're all building back better because now is the time after COVID for the Great Reset. The economic, the World Economic Forum is getting together in January. And the topic is the reset. They are resetting after all of this. And we all need to work together as one government kumbaya. The Great Reset of all our economies, of all our societies, and of all our personal liberties. And remember, this isn't me putting forward this crazy conspiracy theory. This is them. Now is the historical moment, the time, not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. That was Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. We have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to of course, this is the Prince of Wales. Learn lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. History would look at this crisis as the great opportunity for reset. The Great Reset is a welcome recognition that this human tragedy must be a wake-up call. It is UN. imperative that we reimagine, rebuild, redesign, reinvigorate, and rebalance our world. This pandemic has provided an opportunity. Your boy Trudeau. For a reset. Reimagine, rebuild, redesign. Indeed, the so-called experts at the World Economic Forum in 2016 fantasized about what 2030 will look like and came up with what they described as utopia. And I quote, welcome to 2030. I own nothing. I have no privacy and life has never been better. 
Yeah, this is a good one because they put this out in 2016. They got a ton of crap for it. They pulled down some pages and you can still find it online. You can still find some of the original pages up. I have a bunch of links in the show notes. The idea is in 2030, you don't own anything. You rent what you need and things get delivered to you via drone. That's literally what they say. Also, you're not going to eat meat. It's going to be a rare treat. Um, We're going to print our organs by 2030. That's another thing that they were claiming. This is the world th- – these these World Economic Forum people are the very billionaires that got us into this horrible mess where we have political gridlock. The very same people who financed these politicians and destroyed the middle class are now getting together in January as they do just right around every uh, four years, right after a new president's elected. And they all kumbaya it up. These, bril- these brilliant billionaires who have caused these problems are going to solve all of our problems. And, they, and they, they think they have the solutions. The World Economic Forum's experts predicted. But how do the World Economic Forum and the United Nations intend to bring about this utopia of theirs, this great reset they keep promising us? Well, they need national and state governments and other bodies to play along. And one of the key tools they are using is a three-word slogan, build back better. Now, I think this has been in the works shortly after Trump. Well, it was in the works before Trump got elected. If Hillary was elected, she would have gone to the World Economic Forum and she would have participated in this drinking club and they would have worked together for their new world agenda to to help those who are in need. Of course, of course, all for all for that, of course. But you see, Trump came along and he, he put a he put a wrench in the whole damn works. And so they have been waiting, waiting for this jackass to get out of office so that way they can get back to the hard work of kumbayaing the world's governments. He was in their way. And now their guy is back. Their guy is in. Joe Biden's all in. And and to really kind of signal it to each other, they've all adopted this build back better slogan. You know, Joe's slogan for his presidency? Well, guess what? All of these world leaders that are all in are throwing it around. Joe's not the only one using Build Back Better. Back better. An ambitious and responsible vision of how to build Canada back better. Trudeau. And now is the time for all of us Bojo. to begin to build back better. Building back better has also been Joe Biden's campaign slogan, as explained here by Elizabeth Warren. Build it back better. We're going to take an economy that had a lot of problems and we're going to make this economy work better going forward. And spot the pattern, because Build Back Better was also the slogan that the Green Socialist Jacinda Ardern won her recent New Zealand election with. And over the next three years, there is much work to do. We will build back better from the COVID crisis. Yeah, that's right. We're going to build back better, all of us together. And it's a nice little uh, club they're all in. Is this we ain't in it. And I think really Biden got with the program in general and the messaging around Trump, too. Last week during a press conference, he said it's not really a big deal. It's not going to affect their transition plans. Doesn't really matter what the president does. They'll be ready on in January. No big deal. But I think things have changed. I think maybe somebody told him maybe him and Cam had a pow. And in, the, in there, she said, listen, Joe, we got to put the pressure on this guy. Think about the opportunity we have here. 
if we go in, if or perhaps in their parlance, if we lean in, if we lean into this problem, then we have ourselves a free check, a blank check to write. We have ourselves an excuse. We have ourselves a go-to explanation if anything goes wrong. Vaccine doesn't work out very well, doesn't get deployed very well. They, they, they screw up the deployment. Blame the, blame the rocky transition. There's some horrible leak about some sort of government thing in the, in the first six months of Biden's presidency. Blame the transition. Terrorist attack on the United States. Blame the transition. So listen, Joe, you got to get in with the program here. This is going to be something we're going to call upon in our president, in our in in in, in your ha, ha, sorry, in your presidency. You better get with the program. What do you see as the biggest threat to your transition right now, given President Trump's unprecedented attempt to obstruct and delay a smooth transfer of power? You got to really appreciate how hard the media really hits Joe with these questions, huh? More people may die. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden issued a dire warning Monday when asked about the possible consequences of President Donald Trump's refusal to concede the election and share his administration's COVID-19 vaccine distribution plans to help combat the pandemic. If we have to wait until January 20th to start that planning, it puts us behind over a month, month and a half. And so it's important that it be done, that there be coordination. Although the reality is the vaccine companies were talking with Biden's team before they talked with the Trump White House, the sitting president. They've already formed their COVID A-team. They're already consulting with the military on distribution. So they're already making the plans. And Joe couldn't help but just sort of slip into the reality of things. It kind of went back to what he was saying last week. And that this isn't really going to debilitate their transition at all. And they hate it when he says this. They've told him, stop saying it. And so we're moving along uh, knowing what the outcome will be. And uh, um, as I said earlier, and I probably shouldn't repeat it, but I find this. uh... It's interesting they don't play this, by the way. There's no news report that has this audio. I have this audio because I watched the news conference and recorded it. And you can find YouTube videos of the entire news conference. You would have to watch all of the news conference to get this clip because the news media doesn't play this part for you where he stops and he audibly says, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even say this, but I'm going to say it because he's been told to stop saying this. It's not because he's going to say something negative about Trump. It's because he's been told to shut up and get with the program and start blaming Trump's trans- rocky transition for everything wrong in the first year. Shut up, Joe, and get with the program. But they don't play your president, your president-elect now, America, questioning himself. They don't play him pausing as he sits there and tries to get his thoughts together. They cut that part out. Not sure why, but they did. And so we're moving along uh, knowing what the outcome will be. And uh, um, as I said earlier, and I probably shouldn't repeat it, but I find this uh, more embarrassing for the country than debilitating for my ability to get started. That's actually my take, though, too. His take isn't wrong. He's right. I mean, that's the thing. Is, is This is really kind of – it's, it's going to get to a point where it's embarrassing. Um, although, although, check the show notes. Uh, there has been some interesting developments, which I will, uh, if they play out, I will cover in the next episode. But I wanted to get in and analyze a little bit of the incoming Biden team to give you a picture of who's coming. And then I wanted to just present you with a 
with, with maybe one of the most ironic, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, unaware, um, just un- an unbelievable bit of audio I have for you. It's so ironic I want to puke. This is your good buddy Adam Schiff on MSNBC lamenting with joy, I mean the host, joy, about about how the incoming uh, administration is going to be plagued by investigations nonstop and that the Republicans won't be getting any actual governing done and will spend all of their time investigating. Adam Schiff was the guy that was leading all of the investigations into Russiagate. He was the guy that was leading the torch for impeachment investigations. Adam Schiff was the one leaking information in bits and pieces to CNN, MSNBC, and and the Washington Post and the New York Times. Adam Schiff was the one that was wasting millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into all of these different investigation committees. See, we, we think of the Mueller report, but there were several parallel investigations going on that Schiff pushed that is reported somewhere in the $80 million range of taxpayer dollars that found nothing that, that, that stuck with Trump. Nothing. That was all Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff was the man behind all of that. I, I used to call him Sheriff Woody, but I felt like that was unfair to Sheriff Woody. So when he goes on with Joy Reid and they they bemoan a future where Biden's going to get investigated by the GOP, I wanted to reach through the screen and smack them across the face. But I need to go back to Republicans for just a moment, because both House and Senate Republicans have made it clear that when um, sort of the normal order resumes and when Congress is back in session and, and at work, they're not interested in doing any work that involves legislating or helping people during this awful pandemic that's now taken, you know, COVID has now taken down. I don't even know how many administration officials. we got Corey Lewandowski being the latest. You know, let's stop here. So, of course, they're referring to in these investigations most likely are the Hunter Biden emails and the things that those revealed. But I, I realized listening to this clip that hosts like Joy here are are now deploying COVID like politicians and spokesholes used to deploy 9-11. Remember when Giuliani we used to ha- and Bush and they every speech would have to reference 9-11. It, it was we used to have a counter on the show in the early days of the show of how many times 9-11 would get mentioned in a speech. And it, it would happen so often that we ruled don't ring the bell each time because you'll have to ring the bell so many times it'll annoy people. Because they would always drop 9-11 in there as some sort of moral authority marker or, you know, to sort of set the context of the direness of terrorism and the situation that the nation faces. And it was rampant. It was abused. It was gratuitous. And that's what we're now seeing here as this well-paid MSNBC host just deploys COVID as yet another political talking point. It's just another thing we can ram down people's ears to make Republicans bad. And it it's so gross. Just like 9-11 should never, should never be used like that. No tragedy. No real tragedy where you truly feel the connection with the with the circumstances should be used for any kind of political banter like this. It's not like this is some important national discourse. This is an MSNBC host on a moderately viewed show 
filling airtime. You can go on and on and on, Mark Meadows. All of these officials, uh, even inside the Trump world, have it. Trump had it. Um, but what they want to focus on is investigating. They want to go after Hunter Biden still. They want to go after the investigations that led to impeachment, a time in which I think for a lot of people, you sort of became the modern day Thaddeus Stevens, you know, making your arguments against Trump during impeachment. They want to go after the, the Mueller probe again. Is this what we're going to have to sit through for the next four years? Republicans just doing investigations and refusing to legislate? Yeah. So this, by the way, Thaddeus Stevens was a Republican, um, which is uh, only makes this more ironic. Do you hear this? Do you hear the hypocrisy here? This is the network of Russiagate. This is what for a little while made Rachel Meadows huge. That's what made her queen of MSNBC is Russiagate. And every little teeny tiny rumor what what is made into hours of airtime. And now, now that we have something real with these emails, with pictures and and text messages and emails that are verified by other people in the conversations that line up with time and dates that are publicly known, that tie back to what appears to be a system in which companies and politicians can buy access to the Bidens and specifically now the president of the United States. When what was fueling Russiagate was a steel dos- was the steel dossier, which was known bad info. Even at the time now, there's I just haven't really played the clips for you because I imagine you're all sick and tired of hearing about Russiagate. But even just last week, there were hearings on it <laughs> and it's obvious that it was a farce. In fact, in fact, it's just clearly linked to Hillary Clinton now. You really should go look it up. It is It really shows you just what a ridiculous conspiracy theory it all was and how people and people who still talk about it are conspiracy theorists. And if anybody ever throws that in your face, you you know, that's true about them. If they believed in Russiagate and big bad Putin and altering the election, they are conspiracy theorists. And there is the people involved on the record clarifying how fake it all is. And so at this point, they're opting not to know. It's all on YouTube. And Adam Schiff was at the center of all of it. Adam Schiff was the one ramming it down all of our ears for years. He was leading the investigations. He was feeding the media mob. He was taking every single opportunity to attack Trump and make this about Trump being a a puppet of Putin. Any opportunity he got, he got on the air moments after something would happen. Little Adam Schiff would run to the microphone and get on air as fast as possible. Little Adam Schiff leaked important information after a hearing on air and never got in trouble for it. And now little Adam Schiff is going to play the moral high ground and and in an unbelievable twist of logic, turn this around on the Republicans. Four years, Republicans just doing investigations and refusing to legislate. With no iron. Well, no we, iron. we may. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, I think you're absolutely right uh, about um, the fact that this wouldn't be going on right now. Uh, this obstruction of the transition wouldn't be going on if Republicans weren't allowing it to go on. Indeed, that's been the story of the last four years. You wouldn't have the breakdown of the independence of the Justice Department under Bill Barr if Republicans had stood up and defended that institution. You wouldn't have the abuse of the pardon power. You wouldn't have the stonewalling of subpoena. You wouldn't have the flagrant violation of the Hatch Act holding convention on the White House grounds. Adam Schiff makes me sick. 
You know, this is what the problem is with the Democrats is guys like Adam Schiff, people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Just like on the Republican side, you know, you could easily say Mitch McConnell is a big part of what's wrong with the Republican Party. But the list drops off pretty quick there. I mean, there's there's a bunch of different idiots and jerks, right, that all have their individual problems. I mean, let's not even start talking about Ted Cruz. But when you look at the leadership of the Republican Party or of the Democrat Party, I can't even actually keep them apart anymore, to tell you the truth. I really can't even keep them separate anymore. What I really see is a bunch of corporatists who just play different political talking points to get ahead. But something about Schiff, you know, he's really in the fight. He really, truly doesn't care what the cost is. He doesn't care what he has to do. He wants to take out the Republicans and he wants to take out Trump. There's something about Schiff that is just a little more twisted than you see from just about anybody else. And to see him moralize like this and just do it with a smile on his face and look like a little Sheriff Woody in a suit, it it really frustrates me that this guy just goes on with impunity. If Republicans had stood up and defended that institution, you wouldn't have the abuse of the pardon power. You wouldn't have the stonewalling of subpoena. The abuse of the pardon power. You mean like how Bill Clinton pardoned family? You wouldn't have the flagrant violation of the Hatch Act holding a convention on the White House grounds, but for Republicans going along with it, and they're going along with it still, and it is just tearing down our democracy. Ironically, it's part of the process, which is constitutionally protected. That's what's so weird about this. They talk about tearing down the democracy, but the, the, things, that keep our dem- the things that keep our democracy true are things like the rule of law and the Constitution. It's really a wild disconnect from reality and the way he can spin it to make it seem just so reasonable. Whew. Boy, I see. And I thought this was going to be the segment that I calmed down along with it still. And it is just tearing down our democracy. I, I do expect in the new Congress that, yes, they'll continue to try to go after Joe Biden, delegitimize Joe Biden. They won't be interested in getting things done because they'll they'll feel particularly Kevin McCarthy in the house that if we govern well then it impedes their ability to change the majority in the house we're going to have to overcome that though joy because the american people are counting on us they need help right away oh yeah yeah oh listen to that listen to that earns truth there they're counting then on us then it impedes their ability to change the majority in the house we're going to have to overcome that though joy because the american people are counting on us yeah, yeah, too bad it just didn't matter when it was a Russia investigation. I just can't, oh, I can't. And maybe I'm feeling particularly spicy about the establishment with all of the news going on with Trump firing different people from the Pentagon and the and the spin down in Afghanistan and the mixed messaging around all of this. In fact, the message that's hardly getting out there is a significant troop withdrawal could be happening in Afghanistan, and I want to capture that for you. The Pentagon has announced that it is reducing the number of U.S. troops in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Between now and mid-January, U.S. troops will be drawing down their presence with roughly 2,500 remaining in both countries. I celebrate this day as we continue the president's consistent progress in completing the mission we began nearly two decades ago. As you might imagine, the D.C. establishment doesn't like that too much, but uh, who you just heard there was Trump's new acting defense secretary, and he's all in. Um, if you if you want to picture what this guy is like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the original Die Hard movie, 
But you remember the guy at uh, in the office building who who had the beard that did coke and he tried to go in and negotiate with the terrorists and he ends up – well, I don't want to spoil it. That's what this guy reminds me of, his mannerisms, kind of the way he talks, only he's a little older, a little more seasoned, a little gray, but he's completely that guy. And in one of his first press conferences after getting the new acting defense secretary position, he praises Trump's drawdown, which I think this is notable because it's clear that Esper, Mark Esper, was fired because he wasn't going along with the drawdown. And if you look at some of Trump's recent firings, it's all about what he's trying to do in Afghanistan. In light of the countless sacrifices made by hundreds of thousands of American service members and our enormous progress over, nor- over nearly two decades, we are now bringing these conflicts to their successful and responsible conclusion under the bold leadership of President Trump. Yesterday, the president ordered the downsizing of our force presence in Afghanistan and Iraq, 2,500 troops in each country by 15 January 2021 in a manner that protects our fighting men and women and our hard-earned gains. At the same time, you all know this, should any malign actors underestimate our resolve or attempt to undermine our efforts, we will not hesitate to restore deterrence and defeat any and all threats. Now, one of the other first things this acting defense secretary Chris Miller did is he changed the way that the Civilian Oversight Board reports. And the reason why this matters is it it could kind of limit some of the options an incoming Biden administration has to stop this whole thing, which is absolutely part of the strategy here. Trump is getting this thing spun down. Who knows why? I would imagine so he can walk out with that feather in his cap. But ultimately, the Biden incoming Biden administration doesn't want this and the right doesn't want this. So there is this little wrinkle in here that it seems Chris Miller has inserted. And according to the Military Times, will impact the transition, the incoming administration's ability to alter some of these plans, potentially. As we implement the president's orders, we also recognize that transitions in campaigns are fraught with risk and unexpected challenges and opportunities. That is why I am here today to announce, this is is an omen, Uh uh-oh. I'm here today to announce that I have directed the Special Operations Civilian Leadership to report directly to me instead of through the current bureaucratic channels. This historic step finalizes what Congress has authorized and directed and will put Special Operations Command on par with the military services for the first time. It's hard for me to really kind of understand and appreciate what that change means because I haven't seen much reporting on that. But what I have seen is big pushback from both the left and the right. The D.C. war machine does not want this. And it doesn't matter if it's if you're part of the war machine or if you're just part of the Trump is bad machine. You don't want this. And these two forces are combining together to push back. Here is your good buddy, Senator Tammy Duckworth, who is a vet herself, saying that if Trump pulls out the troops and brings them home, it will kill them. All of the military commanders have spoken up and said, this is the wrong thing to do. We want our troops home, but let's not bring them home in, in body bags. And that's potentially what's going to happen if this president gets his way and puts his own political timeline ahead of our national security. That doesn't even make sense. It's just clearly got to push back. Orange man bad, got to push back. 
Taking troops out doesn't kill them. Now, the troops that are left are under more strain, so take them all out. Then no one dies. But, of course, that's not even going to happen. you got to leave some troops, can't take all the troops out. And McConnell, he thinks his plan also sucks. In a clear deviation, a clear splitting from the Trump administration, he's now twice, he's now twice publicly come out and said this is a bad idea. Yesterday and the day before, here's the first one. We're playing a limited, limited, but important role in defending American national security and American interests against terrorists who would like nothing more than for the most powerful force for good in the world to simply pick up our ball and go home. Man, how many times have we heard the variations of this speech over the nearly 20 years that this thing's been going on? How many times? How many times have we heard these same excuses and these same talking points, these same reasons to just keep the troops there? They would love that. That's why last year, 70 senators, a bipartisan supermajority, voted for an amendment I authored. It acknowledged the progress made in Syria and Afghanistan, identified the risks that remain, and cautioned that precipitous withdrawal would create vacuums that Iran, Russia, and the terrorists would be delighted. And you're already seeing stories about the Taliban is coming back. Uh, I, I, you know, I kind of had forgotten what it was like. Um, I mean, during Obama, the ISIS stuff, the beheadings, Baghdadi and the Taliban, like all this stuff was going on with with the Middle East and terrorism. And it was so it was such a front and center conversation. And under Trump, it's all kind of faded away. It's kind of just settled down a little bit. And it has been a while since I've heard that saber rattled. And um, it it makes me think we're probably going to be hearing a lot more about the Taliban and, and terrorism with Biden back in the White House. And there is some big resistance. You know, the generals don't like this. Of course, they uh, are lifelong. <laughs> they're lifelong career uh, military officers <laughs> that this is this is all they've known. This is what they do. They are a hammer and everything is a nail. General Mark Milley, who is the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, also seemed to send a message to Trump recently, which I think kind of is perhaps signaling what their logic is. They've they've seemed to have given themselves a reason to not follow the commander in chief's orders because they have a higher calling, which is true. And I, I think perhaps justifies why they are dragging their feet and attempting not to pull this off. We are unique among militaries. This is Mark. We do not take an oath to a king or a queen, a tyrant or a dictator. All things Trump has been called. We do not take an oath to an individual. Obviously. No, we do not take an oath to a country, a tribe, or religion. We take an oath to the Constitution. And every soldier that is represented in this museum, every sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman, each of us will protect and defend that document regardless of personal price. Or who's in power, right? It almost kind of sounds like he's saying he's not going to do what the president is telling him to do. Something's going on, though, at at the Pentagon and the military leadership in general. I remind you just recently we had these reports of 
the Pentagon house cleaning. Um, you heard a little bit of this in our intro clip. Here's the full context. Another Pentagon official leaving his post. Top intelligence official Joseph Kernan resigning tonight. Four senior officials at the Pentagon now have been fired or resigned in just over the past 24 hours, including the defense secretary, person at the top of the entire chain, Mark Esper. Also breaking tonight, CIA Director Gina Haspel meeting with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as her fate hangs in the balance. Barbara Starr is out front from the Pentagon. Barbara, what are your sources telling you about this shakeup? I mean, four senior people gone in just a day. Well, good evening, Aaron. All indications are these four officials, basically the victims, if you will, the recipients of the White House deciding to clean house for political reasons. There seems to be no other explanation at the moment. In fact, the policy chief now being replaced by a Trump loyalist who has advocated conspiracy theories in the past. <gasps> conspiracy theories related to the military? Who could be such a maniac? So there is a lot of dismay and outright anxiety up and down the Pentagon hallways right now. One official is saying uh, they believe the beheadings, that's the word they're using, the political beheadings, obviously, are done for now. Another official telling me uh, that it's scary, that it's unsettling, that these are dictator-type moves. That's the kind of language we are hearing from people tonight here in the Pentagon. And one of the reasons is because there's just not a clear understanding of what the president intends to do next. Why is he really replacing all these people? And does he have some sort of agenda to use the military, to use the Pentagon that nobody understands that has not been made public yet? Since when do subordinates in the military have any right to know what uh, their commanders are thinking or doing next? Aren't they supposed to just do what they're told? And if the commander in chief fires some of them, um, I can understand how that'd make people uncomfortable, but she seems like she's exaggerating a little bit there. Here's what I think's going on. Trump knows he's on his way out. He has, perhaps he perceives the most power now. Once he concedes the power, I think, you know, you've got to think like Trump does, right? His power is diminished once he concedes. There has to be a calculus in this. It's not why he's not conceding, but it has to be a calculus. So. I do whine because I want to win. What I think is likely going on is that Trump is now a lame duck. He's a lame duck Trump. And there are a few areas where he still has leverage and power. And the commander in chief is one of those areas where he can affect immediate change. He doesn't have to go through a broken D.C. political system that has completely rejected him. Right. The immune system has attacked the invader and it is on its way expelling it out to the surface. It's nearly got it out of the body now. And he knows he lost his power there. And you can see McConnell is split, too. And as this thing drags on, he's losing more and more allies. But he can take unilateral action when it comes to the military. Then again, maybe it's not that. You know, maybe he's not trying to get one last win. Which, by the way, <laughs> this is just... It, this is so obvious on its face, but I'm going to point it out. If that is his strategy, then it's clearly him signaling he knows is on his way out. And all of those that are worried about a coup and everyone who's worried about Trump trying to steal the election should be taking this as a good sign. And, and so, all you know, like you can't have it both ways. So just something to consider. But maybe it has something else. Maybe there's something else at play here because it appears that Australia is set to release a report 
on a probe into war crimes in Afghanistan that involve their own troops and U.S. troops. So maybe some heads are about to roll. An independent inquiry investigated 55 incidents involving Australian special forces in Afghanistan that allegedly took place between 2005 and 2016, including accusations of unlawful killings of prisoners and civilians. Australians were deployed alongside U.S. and allied forces following the 2001 September 11 attacks in New York. The inquiry began in early 2016 and has been conducted behind closed doors since then. It was instigated by a commander of special forces and supported by the Australian Defence Force. But as it's progressed, the alleged incidents have become a highly charged public debate. And there has been a lot of attempts by Trump's team to slow this thing down. They don't want this information out there. And I I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there's a little house cleaning due to that as well. But speaking of heads rolling, there was a new hearing involving the Mark Zuckerberg Facebook CEO and the Twitter CEO Jeff Dorsey. And this time it was about election interference. And it was a lot of the same. It was exceedingly boring. And there was very little to tell you about except for a couple of fascinating moments. And I grabbed those for you. So this first one is Senator Kennedy, and he traps old Zuck and Jack in their own logic and kind of exposes it out there while also sort of being a gentleman about it. I want to I test a, a point of view here. I'm not sure I subscribe to it, but I want to get your thoughts on it. Mr. Dorsey, do you believe everything you read? No. Why not? I think it's healthy to have uh, skepticism about everything and, and have a mindset of um, uh, verifying it and um, um, and using as much information as possible to do so. Do you have somebody on your staff who protects you from reading things that they think you shouldn't? No. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, do you believe everything you read? No, Senator. Why not? Uh, because a, a lot of things are incomplete or incorrect. So you exercise your own judgment? Yes, Senator. Okay. Do, do you have somebody on your staff whose job is to filter things that they think you should not be reading? He goes on to point out, that by filtering things and linking to things that debunk what's being tweeted or posted, uh, they are playing the role of a publisher and forfeiting their 230 protections. I'll jump ahead a little bit so you can maybe hear some of that conversation. Fire in a crowded theater uh, if there's not actually a fire, right? Because that could put people in the risk of imminent harm. So you mentioned terrorism, you mentioned child exploitation and bullying as forms of harm. And I think a lot of the debate is around what are other forms of harm. Um, for example, we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, and, and we've assessed that um, misinformation about COVID and treatments uh, that, that could put people in, in additional risk of getting the disease um, or not seeking the right treatment if they have it, um, that those are also things that could cause imminent harm. 
Um, we've taken the position that Mr. Zuckerberg, let me interrupt you, and I really do apologize, uh, but I'm, I'm going to be cut off in a second, inappropriately so. I'm not saying you're wrong by doing what you just described, but that makes you a publisher. And uh, that, that, uh, that creates problems with Section 230. And I, I just think it, one point of view is that at some point, we, we've got to trust people to use their own good judgment to decide what they choose to believe and not believe and not, not, not try to uh, assume that we're smart and they're stupid and that we can, we can discern believable information and information that shouldn't be believed, but everybody else is too stupid to do it. Oh, man, if that wasn't like a glass of cold water after walking through a desert of crap in this hearing, I have to say, if I haven't just been making that point recently myself, um, and he got him, they absolutely have to, they have crossed the line into publisher. What's tricky is they're both information provider and distributor and publisher. They play both roles. But the one that I thought was maybe the most uh, spicy, speaking of spicy things uh, this episode um, Senator Hawley had, I think it's our, uh, anyways, he went after uh, Zuck for a creepy tracking program known as Sentra, which he found out about via a whistleblower. And so he got actual like diagrams and documentation about this Sentra tracking system. Now, it is a methodology that Facebook can use to track you across multiple Facebook accounts in case you have multiple but also track you when you're not logged in across the web and other locations. And he he kind of has a gotcha moment where he, Zuck, clearly knows about this, clearly knows about it, but he goes, it's called probably something, there's has some you know other term internally you know, that they have for it. And so because the senator didn't use that exact name, Zuck just gets to play ignorant. It's, it's fascinating how these CEOs seem to know so little about the operations of their company. But I'm not buying it, and I wanted to play this bit for you because I think it was my favorite moment of the hearing. He knows that he has and has now acknowledged that he has, that Tasks has under oath. Let me, let me switch to a different topic. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, tell me about Sentra. What is the Facebook internal tool called Sentra? Uh, Senator, I'm not aware of any tool with that name. Mm. Well, Matt, let me see if this refreshes your memory. There's a demonstrative now over my shoulder. Centra is a tool that Facebook uses to track its users, not just on Facebook. Over his shoulder, he's got one of the diagrams he received. It is, looks, although it's hard to tell from this shot, but it looks to me like a internal like PowerPoint presentation that was giving staff an overview of the functionality that he got a copy of. And then he had it printed out and put it up <laughs> on a display board like they love to do. And uh, that's what he's referring to now when he's talking. Mm. Well, Matt, let me see if this refreshes your memory. There's a demonstrative now over my shoulder. Centra is a tool that Facebook uses to track its users, not just on Facebook, but across the entire internet. Centra tracks different profiles that a user visits, their message recipients, their linked accounts, the pages they visit around the web that have Facebook buttons. Centra also uses behavioral data to monitor users' accounts, even if those accounts are registered under a different name. And you can see a shot here, a screenshot provided to us of the Centra platform. We've blocked out the user's name in the interest of privacy, although you can see this individual's birth date and age when they first started using Facebook, their last login, as well as 
all manner of trackings. How many different devices have they used to access Facebook? How many different accounts are associated with their name? What accounts have they visited? What photos have they tagged? And on and on and on. Mr. Zuckerberg, how many accounts in the United States have been subject to review and shut down through Centra? Senator, I do not know because I'm not actually familiar with the name of that tool. I'm sure that we have tools that help us with uh, our, our platform and community integrity work, um, but I, I am not familiar with that name. Do you have a tool that does exactly what I've described and that you can see here over my shoulder? Or are you saying that that doesn't exist? Senator, I, I'm saying that I'm not familiar with it and that I, I'd be happy to follow up uh, and, and uh, get you and your team the information that, that you would like on this. Um, but I, I'm, I'm limited in what I can, what, what I'm familiar with and can share today. It's always amazing to me, Mr. Chairman, how many people before this committee suddenly develop amnesia. Maybe it is something about the air in the room. Let me... <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works, because I guess if you claim you can't remember or you don't know, they can't prove it's wrong. So it's a real good go-to. It's been interesting watching that. I think those two clips were probably the most substantive of the entire hearing. Um, it seems like nobody, neither side is done with these tech companies. And this almost felt like it was scheduled before the election even happened. And I wonder how it would have gone had Trump won. But um, I watched it so you didn't have to. I appreciate everyone tuning in, sharing the show with somebody who they think might find it appealing. You know, there's got to be somebody out there that you think might be like-minded with this show and be interested to hear my take and maybe have a conversation with you around it. Share it. It's the number one way to market podcasts. It's really the only thing that works is word of mouth. Your support also matters at patreon.com slash unfilter and your emails and feedback can be given directly to me to my secure proton email inbox at unfilter.show slash contact. RSS feeds for the show unfilter.show slash subscribe. You get the theme? It's all at unfilter.show basically. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of your unfiltered program. And I'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>